You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Does Lojack for laptops report back to Moscow? World Cup cybersecurity? Schneider Electric Patches developers' tools, travel and hospitality reward points are the bait of the black market. Medical device vulnerabilities, taking the gloves off Cyber Command, it's National Password Day, and Microsoft, along with many others, would like to move beyond the password. And a remembrance on Press Freedom Day for working journalists murdered by the Taliban. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 3rd, 2018. Finding, locking, and getting files back from a stolen laptop, these things are all good. If you look at them another way, however, you can see some potential for problems. Finding, locking, and data exfiltration are, of course, things that attackers are just as interested in doing as admins are. Security firm NetScout's Arbor Networks has reported a possible backdoor in LoJack for laptops, a tool that enables administrators to remotely lock, locate, and remove files from a stolen computer. Five LoJack agents were found to be communicating with four dodgy command and control domains, three of which have in the past been associated with Fancy Bear, familiar to all of us by now as Russia's GRU. Absolute Software, which makes LoJack for laptops, says it's been in discussions with Arbor Networks. It takes the matter seriously and is investigating, but doesn't believe its customers are at risk. Fans of football, what we here in the States refer to as soccer, know that this year the World Cup will be played in 11 Russian cities. Russian security authorities are boosting cyber preparations before the event, looking at hotel Wi-Fi, World Cup networks, media, and so on. They are probably mindful of this past winter's hacking of the Olympic Games and don't want the same threat actors spitting in the soup this summer. Who was that mucking around in the South Korean Games? Fancy Eagle? Fancy Lion? Fancy Kiwi? Fancy Kangaroo? Fancy Loon? Fancy something or other? Well, (laughs) wait, never mind. Schneider Electric has patched a vulnerability in its Indusoft Web Studio and InTouch Machine Edition, The products aren't themselves control systems, but rather tool sets used to develop SCADA systems, human-machine interfaces, and applications that connect automated systems. The bug, discovered and disclosed by security firm Tenable, is a buffer overflow issue that could be exploited to execute arbitrary code. 
Travel reward points are relatively easy to monetize, and they're being sold in Russian-language dark web markets. Botnet operators often pick up such credentials incidentally in the course of other illicit activities, and for the most part, they sell them to other criminals. The botnets deploy keyloggers to pick up more directly valuable items, like network or financial credentials, but they sweep up the travel rewards along the way. It's like watermen going after rockfish and then selling the bycatch for cat food. Analysts at security company Flashpoint, who've been following the matter, say that the fact that there are such a surprisingly large number of dark web boutiques specializing in travel and hospitality reward points indicates a serious criminal demand for them. How long will the trade continue? Well, that's an easy question to answer. As Flashpoint says, it will go on as long as money is to be made from it. Edna Conway is Chief Security Officer, Global Value Chain, at Cisco. She joins us to discuss how organizations can build what she calls a pervasive security architecture that tackles the often undefined and overlooked third-party risks. Look, as we digitize, we're all aware of the fact that we're expanding the ecosystem of third parties who really will inevitably impact us for better or for worse. When you start to think about that, what it means is you need to think about security in a pervasive way, not just using the words cyber and thinking information security, but thinking comprehensively about the way we experience the digital economy uh, through devices, engagements with people, engagements via services, and incorporate that holistic thinking into an approach that I call pervasive security. That's the goal. So let's dig into some of the details here. Uh, how, how do you make that a reality from a practical point of view? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's not easy. And I think the the reason why it's not easy is because you have to sit back, take the time to think about your third-party ecosystem. So if you want to pervasively drive security, the first thing you really need to think about is looking at that value chain or that third-party community holistically. Who are they? What do they provide to you? Where are they providing it? And how are they providing it? These begin to inform you on how to drive an architecture that will allow you to look at security threats and exposures in a way that's, while comprehensive, flexible, for the purposes of examining each of those third parties in their own environment, in their own business context, and how you utilize them. When I'm dealing with a third party, what's your recommendations in terms of verification to make sure that they're actually living up to their end of the deal? (laughs) Verification is an interesting question. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, look, global governments are clearly ramping their focus on what they refer to often as cyber supply chain risk management. So it's a way of managing risk, not necessarily a focus that says compliance and compliance only, right? We see it in the NIST CSF draft 1.1. We see it in the energy sector here in the U.S. and North America and Mexico uh, with NERC's SIP. How you do that is first sit down and say, what am I worried about? identify what the threats are, translate those threats into exposures that make sense for your third parties, and then drive a flexible architecture with what I like to call domains that are common, but the requirements within those domains are customized based on the nature of each third party member's effort on your behalf as part of your ecosystem. Do you find that people have uh, a hard time breaking this process down into manageable bites? 
It depends on on who they are. I, I think in the information communications technology arena, we're seeing it uh, grow more and more as part of doing business. The reporting, the metrics on it is still a little bit of a burgeoning area, quite frankly. But look, you know, I think everybody realizes uh, they don't particularly say it the way I do. But look, I believe the currency of the digital economy is trust, the same currency humans have always had. If you say that trust is the currency, data is the fuel, right? And and data is a fuel maybe for our own decision-making and artificial intelligence to help us with decision-making. All that does is form deposits in your bank of trust. You have to figure out how you want to go out and address the people part of it. Do I trust in people, whether informed by AI or, or not? Do I trust in the data? Maybe I'm going to say I want to drive that because I'm going to drive a digital ledger capacity. Do you trust in the security processes that are deployed by that third party from whom you acquire a product or service or information? And then do we want the government to validate, and that's an open question, what is going on in industry in an effort to seek to both protect their citizens and get back to the question you asked me, which is alignment? All of us can do it in a variety of different ways, but we need to look at some international standards and parameters to set the floor. Um, And quite frankly, I think also set a ceiling that says no matter what we're doing and no matter how high we seek to achieve a level of security based on risk, these fundamental 10, 12, 15 things need to be in the portfolio of what needs to be done and what we're going to measure. That's Edna Conway from Cisco. Becton Dickinson has advised that its medical devices, using WPA2 encryption, are vulnerable to crack key reinstallation attacks. That's K-R-A-C-K. This general Wi-Fi problem isn't confined to medical systems, but Becton Dickinson has issued a fix for the problem insofar as it affects their devices. And the U.S. FDA has ordered the recall of about 465,000 St. Jude, now Abbott Laboratories, implantable cardioverter defibrillators, that is ICDs, for a firmware update. The problem with the ICDs and their associated Merlin at home monitors essentially come down to an authentication backdoor. You may remember that this is the vulnerability publicly disclosed by MedSec in 2016, controversial because the disclosure was done in apparent conjunction with short selling of St. Jude medical stock by Muddy Waters LLC. The vulnerabilities MedSec reported were subsequently independently confirmed by Bishop Fox. U.S. Senator John McCain, Republican of Arizona, is about to publish a book in which he argues, among other things, that the U.S. ought to punish Russian cyber operations with American cyber attacks. That's one senator's view, of course, but there are signs that the National Security Council wants the gloves taken off of U.S. Cyber Command, too. CyberScoop reports a movement among the NSC staff to rescind or modify Presidential Policy Directive 20 to streamline the process by which military commanders could receive approval for offensive cyber operations. It's worth noting that PPD 20 is a classified document, and so critiquing it involves a lot of looking at what agencies do and reading between the lines. But it's generally been characterized as a document that requires extensive interagency coordination across the federal government, in the interest of both proper restraint and due respect for agency equities. You're familiar with today's big holidays and observances, right? If you can take time away from celebrating Garden Meditation Day, quietly, 
Public Radio Day, with proper self-satisfaction, National Raspberry Popover Day, formerly known with unintentional sauciness as National Raspberry Tart Day, or Paranormal Day, because the truth is out there, consider that it's World Password Day. Do you know where your credentials are? We hope they're not in too many places. More seriously, today is also World Press Freedom Day. It's an important right with important responsibilities. This year's observance should also be a somber and reflective one. Taliban suicide bombers exacted a high toll in attacks this Monday. Ten journalists were killed covering the news. It's worth hearing their names. They were Shah Marai, photographer for Agence France Presse and father of six. Yar Mohammed Toki, cameraman for Tolo News, due to be married this month. Ahmad Shah of the BBC Afghan Service. He alone wasn't killed in the bombings, but was shot dead by unknown assailants in Coast Province. Maharam Durrani, who had just begun her work as a reporter for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Abadullah Hananzai, journalist and videographer for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Sabawun Kakar, a five-year veteran of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Ghazi Razuli, reporter for Afghanistan's One TV. Naruz Al-Rajabi, a cameraman also with One TV. And the final two who lost their lives, Salim Talsh and Ali Salimi, both with Mashal TV. May they all rest in peace. May their families, friends, and colleagues be granted consolation in their grief. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. Uh, We had a story come by from the MIT Technology Review, and the title of the article was, When an AI Finally Kills Someone, Who Will Be Responsible? Let's dig in here. What are we talking about? So this sounds like a horror movie gone completely wrong. (laughs) I actually think it's a relatively realistic scenario uh, in the near future. So the proposition this article raised is that it's going to happen sometime over the next several years. We have a self-driving car navigating the city streets and it accidentally hits somebody who is going to be held legally responsible. And that's something that this academic, John Kingston at the University of Brighton in the UK, uh, has tried to sort of decipher and do a legal analysis. So obviously, an AI is not a real person. You can't uh, lock this person behind bars, either Mm. real bars or proverbial bars. So we're sort of looking at alternatives, which actual humans would get punished for either the deliberate actions or the negligence of an AI. And this author proposed a few alternatives, uh, a few sort of legal theories about who we should hold accountable. The first he calls uh, perpetrator via another. In the physical world, it would be when somebody gets somebody else who has some sort of mental incapacity, maybe a minor, maybe a dog, maybe someone with severe mental illness, to commit a crime for them. And then the person who actually solicited that crime is the one who should be legally responsible. Hmm. And that seems like something that you could reasonably apply to AI. If I hacked into the system and instructed the self-driving vehicle somehow to hit somebody on the street, I should be held uh, legally responsible. Sure. Second theory he talks about, natural probable consequence. That's sort of when, in the course of doing what it does, the AI would happen to cause some sort of harm. And the example that this author gives is an artificially intelligent robot in a Japanese motorcycle factory killing a human worker. It sort of reminds me, uh, you know, of the Simpsons episode where the itchy and scratchy characters uh, falsely identify (laughs) the Simpsons family as uh, other robots to murder. Right. Uh, But that's sort of what he's talking about here. The, The robot makes the mistake. And if the programmer knew that this was potentially a concern, then they could be held legally responsible. Hmm. And then finally, there's the third theory, which is direct liability, and that requires both an action and an intent. Action is usually going to be pretty straightforward in this uh, scenario that he's talking about. You know, the AI hits somebody with their car. But the question is intent. And this hypothetical, it's very unlikely that Somebody had the intent to program the self-driving vehicle to hit somebody. You know, in that case, intent is going to be really hard to prove. So what he proposes is that perhaps we should consider it as a strict liability crime. Um, There are a lot of crimes in our legal system. One of them is statutory rape. Frequently, we see speed limits as a strict liability defense where either even if you had a, a good excuse and you didn't know what you were doing is wrong, and you had no sort of criminal mental state of mind, you could still be held criminally liable. So these are sort of the three theories he posited. Um, Certainly, I don't think it's something we're going to come to a uh, resolution on anytime soon, but there's certainly uh, interesting issues to think about. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, So I guess we'll have to stay tuned. Uh, As always, Ben Yellen. I'll I'll see you in 2023. (laughs) Right. Your Skynet goes self-aware? I can't remember. Is it already supposed Uh, to have happened? It it, it, it might happen. All right. All right. right. Ben Yellen, as always, thanks for for joining us. Thanks.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.